Welcome to the Illuminating Mycelium Podcast. The podcast for everyday people by everyday people. I'm your host, Project Dave, and I'm back at it again to continue highlighting and amplifying the lives, ventures, and endeavors of everyday people just like you and me and learning from them along the way. Talking about everyday people and their stories, we can't help but talk about all their hard work. So grab a cup of coffee. I often think about what fuels a lot of these everyday folks, as well as what sustains me personally. Coffee certainly helps, but it can't just be any coffee. It's got to be coffee made by everyday people for everyday people. The kind that when you brew it in a pot, it kind of just draws everyone to the kitchen and they're sniffing that aroma. Our beans are sourced from small businesses in the heart of the Appalachia. My personal favorite, the Route 39 blend from Lexington Roasters is a Forbes top ranked coffee. You can also check the notes on each blend to determine flavor profiles, shipping, and more. Beans are roasted on a weekly basis to ensure freshness. So if you're looking for some extra fuel to aid you in your everyday lives, ventures, and endeavors, go to thegrindbluefield.com backslash shop dash coffee dash roast or click the link in the description to pick out your next coffee beans and brew a pot of happiness. The grind never stops. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce my very first guest, Theo Marceau. Theo, please briefly tell us a little bit about yourself. My Ojibwe name is now Okoyose. Won't go into detail what that is, but uh, walks that new and you translate that into English uh, from each lake and it's a turtle plant. Um, I'm educated within the native community. I've worked as a person growing food, teaching kids how to grow food, teaching the Ojibwe language along with that. Uh, another previous experience I had just recently and over the last couple of years is working with uh, younger kids, age four through six, the pre-K kids. As a pre-K teacher, uh, so beyond that, uh, I was an outreach worker working with youth. Uh, I was a site coordinator for for high school. I had a program that had 90 Native American students and did uh, cultural activities after school. This is why I'm 26 years old. Awesome! Thank you for telling us a little bit about yourself. So, just to dive into your background a little bit further, um, can you tell us how important your identity is to you, and just speak to how it has helped shape you into who you are today? Oh, identity. Uh, it's a big one for me, especially being a Native American, being an Anishinaabe, the original being to its land. These are my homelands. Uh, not specifically Minnesota, but the Great Lakes area. I want to pay homage to the Dakota people in these areas. But uh, identity is important for a lot of reasons. Uh, as a kid in the education system, you know, Native Americans aren't really big of a population and you often get ignored, get overlooked, and resources weren't there as much as they are now. So as a kid, uh, my identity had an impact on my experiences in school and out of school. I grew up with a cultural identity. I was blessed to have a family that uh, grew up speaking the language and grew up within the culture to teach me things that have uh, helped form and shape me into who I am today. And it's just, my identity is important, but what I say is that Anishinaabe people are good at being a human being. That's why I am, that's my identity, human. My tribe and band is Ojibwe, Leech Lake. But uh, beyond that, my identity is important. I know as a human, as an original being, Anishinaabe, 
uh, it drives a lot of things that they do, especially with uh, youth work, being an overlooked population. Uh, a lot of our youth are misunderstood. We have their historical and intergenerational trauma with these institutions and within our bloodlines. With these institutions, it comes with education. Uh, a lot of these institutions weren't built for us. And we can go a little bit into history with the United States and Canada with residential schools and boarding schools with uh, Native youth that were taken from their families or forced to go or you had families that wanted to put their kids to these schools to try to assimilate into the dominant culture, dominant society. And there was a lot of abuse that had occurred. And so um, as a young Anishinaabe person, you know, and as somebody that's just trying to make their way through this world, it is difficult because their identity comes with a lot of struggle, especially with institutions. So being a youth worker and an educator, I fully understand a lot of what these kids are going through. Uh, my family's experienced the residential schools and abuse themselves. And a lot of these uh, traumas that we carry, it has an effect on us in school, out of school, and personalized people around us. Yeah, it's definitely a tragic event. And I know we were just talking the other day, too, about, um, you know, with the current school system, not much has changed since uh, its, its inception way back in the 1900s and you know it's kind of sometimes it's just kind of meant to shape kids into being cogs in the machines and you know i think that goes for all students but then also you have to think about the cultural relevancy that's lacked in a lot of public schools and you know there's some reforms underway but um there's still a long ways to go in terms of that so yeah i definitely agree with that uh that's a big part on it is uh the the larger aspect of everything the more youth not just native youth. Uh, I do agree with that about being cogs in the machine. It's just my experiences working with uh, high school youth is that uh, it's not just that they're bored. They don't believe a lot of the things that they're learning can be applied to their real life situations or in their life. And they're realizing that college education, it, it's, it's expensive. Uh, the job prospects for them getting a job in their field can be low. So it's discouraging. And when, when back to my identity, when it comes to indigenous youth, uh, knowing what their experiences are like and knowing that we have culture, but a lot of it's been uh, stripped away or because of laws, we had to hide things like uh, the Native American Religious Freedom Law, unable to do ceremony and conduct uh, spiritual practices up until 1978, 1979. It was a federally passed law. But uh, yeah, my identity, it has a drive in a lot of things that they do being on Shinobi just because of the past, uh, knowing my history as, as a Anishinaabe Ojibwe person, and coming from a strong bloodline from Leech Lake and the ancestors of uh, Bugganagijik, George White, he was a part of the Battle of Sugar Point. So I know my bloodline and my identity has a big influence in my life when it comes to my spirituality and just interaction. And I've been taught that being Anishinaabe, it's just it's being human. Being human is being kind and understanding of people and trying to find a common ground. Yeah, I definitely feel that. And I know you mentioned youth a lot. And, you know, I know that you have a lot of experience working with youth and adolescents. So do you think that um, they're, they're um, often forgotten? I do believe that they're often forgotten. It's just not just Native youth, but uh, youth in general. Uh, there's a lot of programming and funding that was taken away from uh, with Minneapolis Public Education. And I think just uh, Minnesota education overall in the last five to 10 years, I don't have the exact numbers, but it's definitely in uh, the tens of millions. And I remember working just two years ago 
in our school system as a site coordinator for after school activities that had people that come to me, educators and counselors to see how I can help youth after school to be not just more attentive in class, but to be more fully supported because uh, they were lacking resources during the day and we're trying to fulfill needs and roles outside of school. And it's just difficult. And each year working within these, within these school systems, you see money dwindling year by year. Programs being cut, after school programs being cut, money being moved around or even fought for. It gets very competitive. So youth are important. They really are the future. But I think we need to put our money where our are as a society, not just as taxpayers, but in government too. It's just an allocation for resources for these kids from early education, elementary, middle school, and high school, and post-secondary education. Education is quite important. It is true. You can learn a lot on your own, but I don't believe that we're teaching that to the youth that are in these institutions that you can learn to learn. We're not really teaching that. We're just learning to remember things. I truly do believe that they are forgotten. And when it comes to Native youth, the population is already small. That's experienced historical trauma and atrocities from from the past and even now from past and current administrations. Youth experience, Native youth experience the highest suicide rate, the highest among any other demographic. Uh, our young women have the highest uh, uh, per capita ratio rate for one missing and being murdered. Uh, our communities experience a lot of drug abuse and violence. But beyond that, there's also a lot of beauty. And this is where my identity comes in back to the question you had asked earlier is, there's a lot of strength and uh, resilience in being Anishinaabe, being an original being, being human, being Ojibwe, being from Leech Lake. There's a lot of resilience in that. And that's why my identity is important because of all these atrocities and the traumas that I carry in my bloodline, the things that I'm working on. I have a reference point for things that are post-colonial, things that are, you know, post-colonialism or post-Christianity post-Eurocentric politics, all that. We have a reference point and that, that gets me, my days, it's helped me as a young man. There was the dark spots. I know that's going to help youth. And that's why I believe that the, we need to put our money where models are with when it comes to uh, help youth and help all these programs. Because even uh, for Indian education, there's a lot of money that's being taken away or money that's with grants, that's the grant cycles that have ended. And... It allowed educators to bring in elders from the community or people like myself that are knowledge keepers to be able to talk to these youth and show them something different than what they wouldn't get either at home or in the school. For sure. Well, it's interesting, too, because it kind of reminds me of like the quote about like when a flower doesn't grow properly, you don't blame the flower, you blame the environment. And I think that that's a good way to kind of see how the school system is failing some of the kids. So I think, you know, it's really important that we bring about the changes that are needed to support them both inside and outside of the classroom, like you mentioned, because, um, you know, that's definitely important because you got to have a holistic part of education. It's hard for a child to learn when they have so much on their mind. I know my sister, she's a elementary school teacher and she tells me about this all the time. You know, I mean, Sometimes kids uh, are going through stuff in their fa uh, family life and other things like that. It makes it hard to learn. I agree. That's a really deep question. It really is. It reminded me of uh, something else I asked from an educator of mine, just about what are my thoughts on intergenerational trauma? I won't go deep into that, but it's related to what we're about to speak about. And something to know about the Native community, especially with Native youth, is the intergenerational trauma. 
um, epigenetics, biology, um, stress that can be inherited from our, our parents. And it is our responsibility to heal. We have to grow, but we do have to remember that in the Native community, there's a lot of uh, trauma. Historical trauma does exist, and the stress passed on from our great-great-great-great-grandparents had affected our great-great-grandparents, our great-grandparents, our grandparents, then our mom, dads, and ourselves. Our levels of cortisol and stress in our bodies, not knowing how to manage that, not having the resources or the culturally relevant support to mitigate that, are not learning until we're older. So that's one thing I would love people to know about Native youth is uh, to understand that we're quite different. We have a culture of our own and may think that we can enunciate our words properly, we can speak, we can talk this way or that way, but we do have our own culture in this American dominant society, Eurocentric society. It's things you can't find on the internet, things you can't find in the book, the way we're raised, the way where we are, who we are, where we come from. And there are peer-reviewed studies that support that as well in terms of intergenerational trauma and the effects that it can have uh-huh. on youth, even leading up into adulthood too. That's a big, a big thing I'd love for people to take away about the land, about Native youth is the trauma. And there's a lot of different approaches that we have in uh, Minneapolis. There's uh, Indian education, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and they're doing great work with the kids uh, K-12 that do experience how would you say, um, stress and obstacles in, in the learning environment. And it ranges from a lot of things, from not being able to connect to the teacher, not seeing anybody familiar with you in your environment. It's, it has a big impact on youth and kids. And that's why we need more Native educators and more people of color that are educators. We need more interested youth to see people that are like them. And when it comes to being part of a culture, like I said, we do come from a different culture. We have our own. and that's something to understand is trauma. You know, and there's trauma responses and reactions, and it's different for a lot of people. And just uh, to be patient with our Native youth, to understand them and know that we've gone through a lot as a community, and we're healing, and we're all healing. It's just we have to come together over that. I mean, as you mentioned, there's um, several different approaches you know, that you take. And mm-hmm. I think one thing, one kind of pattern that I see evolve from that is that things on a local level are very important. Oh, yeah. So... Can you speak a little bit more to um, the importance of things on a local level and how organizing in that sort of way can benefit youth and just society in general? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I like that one. Uh, Local level activity and local level engagement with your community, your neighborhood, the city. To me, that is very vital because it brings you back to a quote. It takes a village to raise a child. You can't just have a child be raised by themselves or a small pocket of people, they can become isolated. And when you grow older, you, you want to become an isolated person. Being an isolated person can make you vulnerable to a lot of things, violence, depression, not having that sense of community. So I'm talking about the Native community and locally what, what our community is like. It's American Indian Movement was a, an organization founded in the, in the 60s and 70s in Minneapolis. And it's a hub for Indigenous resistance and activism. Uh, my family had a big part in that. My mother and my father, as children, they'd have AIM meetings in their basement. Uh, my mom and dad both grew up going to uh, council, tribal council meetings, going to protest, to protest the Redskins, to protest bad mascots, to protest injustice, to protest 
land um, disputes, pipelines and gas lines that were encroaching and violating our constitutional rights, which would be treaty rights. And under the Supremacy Clause in the U.S. Constitution, treaties are supreme law of the land, regardless if there's projects or anything that need to be done. That's something that needs to be understood, that treaties are supreme law of the land. Right. And just want to remind everybody that it's within the Constitution. It's a, it's a given right written by the founding fathers in the founding document. Right. But they're consistently violated. They recently did a ruling in, I think it was Oklahoma as well, where they, um, can you, you know a little bit more about it. Would you want to talk about that a little bit? Which ruling are you recently? Oh, the, uh, where, uh, Dividing up some of the land, uh, giving jurisdiction back to the Choctaw. Right, that one. Now, yeah. yeah, and that was a really big Supreme Court case. And if I remember correctly, um, the Supreme Court just had passed away. She had had a pat- bad record on uh, land disputes for indigenous peoples. But she, if I remember correctly, she was on that one and had a good, uh, how do you say, was in support of uh, that land given, being given jurisdiction to those tribes. and. Right. that acknowledgement to it, in Minneapolis being a hub for uh, indigenous resistance, creativity, and life. Uh, we have a really big uh, native population, specifically south side of Minneapolis, Franklin Avenue, like an Indian center, you got a Native American community clinic, you have a gizzy, you have uh, a coffee shop that's native owned, an art gallery. Uh, You're talking about White Earth, right? Or is it Little Earth? Oh, Little Earth, yep. Little that's Earth. 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 One of the biggest housing projects, native housing projects, the only one in the United States. I believe it houses over a thousand native people. It's like well, I've grown up working there. Yep. Now that's part of uh, being locally engaged. They do have a small farm there, and that's where a lot of my experiences with youth had started off. Was being locally engaged as a youth. The CEO, executive director of the Little Earth at the time, asked me if uh, I wanted to grow food for the next season, and I decided to. And one thing after another, working with uh, the adults that were there, the coordinator. Knowing that uh, I grew up around the culture and spoke some Ojibwe, wanted to get some youth involved. When you started having kids, they range aged from five to 14 years old, coming and learning about growing food, traditional names for these plants, and even uses for them. And that had a big impact on the youth in the community because they saw that there was culture relevant things happening, not just down the block, not just a mile away or at a school, but literally within the community that literally they could just come outside and learn. About growing food and even now they have a sweat lodge there there's a, a great person over there i forget his name but he's growing food now and uh, he's helping the community he makes great pickles by the way <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, being locally involved it's, it's so important um, local pickles are the best oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, back to uh when it comes to why being locally involved is important yeah that's since the community's there and a lot of these youth that i worked with they're, they're in high school now uh or their parents now, and I was watching their kids when I was a pre-K teacher, and they remember that they feel safe with uh, me being in the community. They see familiarity, and they feel more safe to be more involved in these institutions that were normally not built for them, or normally, how do you say, built to to be problematic and, and hard for them to navigate. They see someone that's familiar to them in these institutions and systems that can help them navigate. And being in places, showing that sense of community, you, you don't want nobody to feel isolated. Like I said, it brings you in a dark place. And that uh, local sense of engagement, it leaks into all aspects of our life, even health. Uh, if we're locally involved, you can have good health systems. Uh, Native American Community Clinic was started by the community. 
we can go to the community to get a, a native operated place where we can be seen for health. Nice. Even the Indian Health Board, that's just a few blocks behind it. There's a lot of programs and organizations in South Minneapolis that are native operated and started by native people and it's for native people a lot. But that's just uh, beyond the native community, being locally involved is important, knowing your neighbors to be safe. During the uprising here in Minneapolis, uh, we had people throwing gasoline on the garage, throwing oil cans in our yard, and our neighbors had coordinated. We spoke. Um, we were uh, in coordination, gave each other our phone numbers, and talking back and forth, taking shifts to protect our neighborhood, reporting any suspicious behavior, whatever it may be. But that's why community is important. And even beyond that, when it uh, seemed to calm down, we all talked about what are bigger steps to take with this. and. One of the uh, people that lives on the block, they're involved in the city council, our neighborhood council, and we're saying that they can speak up for us and try to get more resources for us to be more more of a community, more resources to be allocated towards us. I don't know what way or form, but that's an important aspect of why it's important to be engaged locally, not just because of yeah, definitely. not being isolated, but you can come together to make decisions in council when it comes to voting voting locally for people that will put the resources where they need to be. Yeah. That's important. So local involvement with anything within your neighborhood, your community, your city, I feel like that needs to be top priority for a lot of people. It's yeah. good for your health. It's good for the people around you. It's good for our economy, our infrastructure. Right. We need to help each other. We can help build each other up. I really like what you said about, um, you know, being close with your neighbors and kind of like establishing lines of communication with them. Because I think in that regard, I think that's something that every city could really learn from and quite frankly, do a little bit better at. Um, obviously with the pandemic going around, it's a little bit tougher, but there are ways to do it. You know, a lot of community centers are still holding events to help people, whether it's, you know, just regular events or distributing food, Things like that. We talked about, you know, how psychology plays a role or how people are affected psychologically by being forgotten Mm -hmm. and, you know, being forgotten about their intergenerational trauma. What role do you think psychology plays on the other end of things when it comes to people forgetting others? Forgetting others, but not being forgotten. Right. So the one word that comes to mind right away is going to be apathy lack of being able to empathize with another person and when you're forgetting a people a community whether it's a demographic people in the line of work they become apathetic and when you have a lot of apathetic people that can influence leaders people in positions of power and authority that have resources an effect on infrastructure right and so that's why that's important. So I think now would be a good time. I'm going to start um, asking you about this camping gear shop that you're going to be opening up here. Um, can you briefly just tell us a little bit about it to start off? Yeah. Uh, so we got a little introduction. It's uh, Anin. Anin in the way of Magani Duk. And uh, the second part is going to be in the game, the Beishuin, do we send them? What that means is hello, relatives. I said, uh, welcome to the campsite. Everybody eats. And that's what the, the shop, this business is uh, going to be about. You can find the handles at G-A-B-E-S-H-I-W-I-N on Twitter and Instagram. And what it's about is uh, foraging, camping, hiking. Um, what else? 
yeah, camping, foraging, hiking. There's going to be a lot of uh, crafting on there from making cedar boxes. We'll be selling cedar boxes, uh, yeah. custom wood burned uh, ornaments, things to hang on your wall, custom tables, uh, a lot of wood crafting, and even uh, indigenous, indigenous, uh, how do you say? Trying to think of the word. Is it indigenous crafted? It's indigenous craft, yep. Yeah. But uh, some of the tools that we're making, such as war clubs, ceremonial tools, we're making cedar plates for food that can be used instead of using ceramic and glass or plastic. Um, but when it comes to camping gear, too, that's a big thing that we're focused on is our not just reviewing camping gear, but partnering and partnering with people locally that sell camping gear. We want to help them get that out. And the reason why I think that's important is our camping and how you can something that brings people together. It did right. when I was a kid. My dad always brought me hiking and we all be people on the trails and be a friendly conversation. And as an adult, I don't really experience that anymore. And it's, I'm not sure what it is. But as a kid, I do remember doing a lot of hiking and camping with my family. And I love that. And so as an adult, I want to give the world uh, an experience, not just to sell them anything, but an indigenous experience on uh, our social media sites and what we do for the community. Right. Uh, is not just a business. It's, um, I want to say it's a movement. It's uh, right on. slowly connected to something that we've done a little bit. But Kadeshwin, you can find those handles, as I mentioned. Uh, they'll be in the description and all that. Yep. But yeah, it's going to be a, um, a little business, a little movement called Kadeshwin. It's called the campsite where you'll be able to learn about bushcraft, survival, foraging. And it's all going to be through an indigenous perspective, even an indigenous uh, teachings and foods and some of the language too. But like you're saying that we're forgotten. I want to give the world an experience. I want them to experience who we are as Anishinaabe, being original, being what it means to be human. And it can be from simple things to starting a fire, cutting down some wood, properly cleaning water, right? things like that that we've been doing for thousands of years. Right. That's but, awesome that you're sharing it with everyone, too. You know, I mean, this is very valuable knowledge to have. Oh, yeah. And uh, beyond that, with the saying this is part of a movement. It was inspired by a, um, a collective of people that I work with. They're indigenous uh, minds. Uh, it's called War Party, and we're indigenous youth. It's a collective that we come together to mutual aid for our community. Mutual aid being uh, resources for food, bringing food, baby resources, diapers, milk, and even helping elders get around from where they need to go. And it really picked up during the uprising. A lot of people needed assistance with food and prescriptions that since a lot of places got burnt down and roads were shut down. And when we came together, we wanted to reflect our, our culture a lot. So a lot of us know where we come from. We know our family histories and we're, we're being led by our clan systems and we being uh, make a knock turtle or educators or philosophers and stargazers. And I definitely see that in you. Oh yeah. It's something that uh, I really felt the con to even, as a child, when before it was revealed what my clan was, and to be an educator, and I've been in that field since I was. You're listening to the Illuminating Mycelium Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, you should come check out all of our fresh new merchandise and apparel that just dropped on our store. We've got T-shirts, pants, sweatshirts, hats, phone cases, water bottles coffee mugs shoot even blankies and a ton more all made with comfy fabrics and premium materials they feature our signature logos catchphrases guest picks and come in all sizes now shipping nationwide right to your doorstep just go to illuminatingmyceliumpodcast.com or click the link in the description to pick out your next gear and become the mycelium
young teenager and it's something that really I'm really passionate about. But with that mutual aid group, you know, this collective, we're an indigenous collective that work with youth and mentoring youth, showing them that they're home and reminding them that they're home and we're here to help people. Yeah. And, and one thing I want to highlight too, when it comes to your shop, because I know that um, we had talking about this, I think a couple of weeks ago is that when it comes to like camping and um, outdoor kind of gear outlets, um, there isn't much um, people of color ownership in that. Oh yeah. So it's nice that you're able to incorporate, you know, indigenous philosophy into your business and everything else. Exactly. And a uh, big thing about being indigenous is being sustainable, using uh, good material. And that's one thing that's important with camping is having good material. In my own experiences of uh, having had good ones when I went out with really bad material, bad quality tents, shirts, base layer gear, whether it's summer or, or winter. Also take care of your equipment and your equipment will take care of you, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> something that's uh, another piece of indigenous philosophy is uh, our tools. Tools are our weapons, tools, the things that we use to work with. They can become alive and you do have to take care of them. Like uh, with me when I'm crafting war clubs out of uh, oak, hickory, and cherry wood, I take care of these tools because I don't not only dance with them if they need to be used, I take care of them, I season them, and I make sure they're, they're strengthened. And like you said, you take care of them. So I don't want to go into too much detail just because I know the website's coming and everything, but if you could only give one piece of advice to a new camper, what would it be? Um, the biggest piece of advice I can get is wear wool, uh, marine wool socks, um, especially during uh, hiking, summertime, spring. Want to take care of your feet? Uh, they sweat, and your feet are rubbing against your shoes in a bad way. You can get blisters, and your feet don't want them to get soggy. That's how you can get a trench foot. And I believe a trench foot would be like gangrene, your foot getting an infection from not walking and moisture and all that. So yeah, cotton is rotten, especially during the winter time. Uh, definitely wear wool when you're out, out hiking, camping. Want uh, the wick, your moisture, and insulate you at the same time and not freeze you. Because so, if you're wearing cotton. Little cotton shirt or a hoodie that you're gonna sweat is gonna get locked in that uh, material and it could freeze. And the next thing you know, your body's trying to warm up, and then you're pulling more moisture away from your body, then it's gonna rapidly cool you. That's dangerous, and you could experience hypothermia even through layered, but uh, with really bad material. So, best and biggest piece of advice is get comfortable with wool, use wool. It's a little spendy, but you get what you pay for. And Definitely. You have to take care of it. You know, take care of wool. It takes care of you just like the tool. You take care of a tool. It takes care of you. Right, right. Your gear is going to take care of you. Don't spend money on cheap stuff. Spend money on good, good stuff that will take care of you. I know you had mentioned this at the beginning, but, you know, camping is kind of something that, like, everybody kind of unites on. Like, everybody likes going out to, um, going into the outdoors. So do you think that it's something that, like, everybody can kind of unite around from all different backgrounds? Oh, yeah. I believe that's a big thing, especially for Native people. Uh, it can bring in a lot of conversations, a lot. I'm going to speak more on a little bit with the national parks and campgrounds. But camping is um, it's a really big family-oriented thing. It's something we don't experience in the cities. And if we do, it's a bonfire. It's a barbecue. Camping's different. You're away from the city. You're away from the, the light pollution, the white noise, uh, even air pollution. You're in an environment where you can unwind and, I don't know, I want to say feel at home, feel at rest, feel at peace. And that's something a lot of people don't get living hour to hour, day to day, check to check in the cities here. And those camping experiences, hiking experiences, they can bring people together. And like I said, as a kid, 
I remember just coming across people on the trail and just having a quick conversation with dad and walking off and seeing another person. I just don't see that much any days. I just, yeah, I do believe though that it's something that can bring people together. And I want to say that uh, the piece that's really important for natives too, and it can bring in a really big conversation is national parks. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but we can talk about land grabs and seeded territories and tra- treaty territory for native peoples. And in Minnesota, a few national parks are covered by treaty territory, if I remember correctly. The Chippewa National Forest, a big uh-huh. portion of it was given back to Leech Lake Reservation. But a lot of these national parks are indigenous territory, and granted, this is all native land. Right. A lot of these places are treaty treaty lands and treaty territory, or they were disputed spots that were forcibly taken. Right. So I feel like coming together and hiking, camping, and barbecuing is important, and it's also a conversation to get to know native people better, educating ourselves on how do these lands come to be. For why, sure. Why were they preserved by Theodore Roosevelt? Why were they preserved by this president? Why are we restoring them? Why are we protecting them? Right. Or was here before this preservation. And to give more credence to that too, in the description box, I'm actually going to have a couple of links for um, some good books um, for people to read on how to navigate these kind of conversations and just learn more about um, Native Americans and help us remember them more. Outside of um, books and things like that, what other things could anyone do to help? remember and honor this forgotten community uh self-education is a really big one uh sometimes it gets strenuous when there's you we have to educate others all the time right but I'll, i've always grown up to to learn to learn things about other people and i feel like that's important it's it's empathy uh, it's it's a human thing to learn about things you don't know especially about another person i've always believed that our differences is what brings us together. Right. If these people think we're actually different, why? I should get to learn and know them where they come from. If I want people to learn and know where I come from, I'm, I want to meet at the middle ground. We can understand each other and we can, we can discuss things and we can learn. And that's what I want to emphasize to people to educate yourselves about who we are and ask questions to those people. And when I say educate yourselves of who we are, look up. Learn about the lands that you occupy and live on. Lands uh, here being Dakota and Lakota territory. Um, see the tribes that are in the state, knowing who they are, and asking questions in person with people. Getting to know them. So I'd like to dive a little bit uh, deeper into the work that you do with Indigenous youth. Can you speak more to that and also? Um, the approaches that you undertake to help them process ge- uh, generational trauma and be able to focus on learning. Yeah, definitely. So I want to go back to something I said earlier. It's a lot of these connections I, I have now. I established them out early in my, uh, my life as a, as a teenager, working in the garden, uh, teaching youth uh, some Ojibwe language and uses for the plants that we were growing in. Even cultural stories when so it was wintertime. So we'd come together and talk about that. But a lot of these youth, they're in high school now. Um, some of them were... A little bit older than me at the time, uh, like 20, 21, and I was like 16, 17 years old. But uh, what was interesting is uh, they have kids now, and having that established connection, working with them, and helping them remember who they are and letting them know that they're home. They remember that, and they see me in the community, and they'll ask, What am I doing over here? What am I doing in this community, this part of the area? They will help them out some kids, so they were hanging out. And 
So the work I do do with youth is established for those connections were established really early. Uh, even with the connections I've made throughout the years as an outreach worker, as a site coordinator for after school programming, and even being a pre-K teacher, those connections with parents, other uh, kids in yeah. their family, and just having been a part of that community, just like we said earlier, that's why it's important to uh, be involved locally. Uh, There's yeah. quite a few people that know I do work outside of an actual job. You know, I'm hanging out with the, uh, the youth, making sure they're okay. And that's a big thing that I didn't have growing up is someone to look up to. Uh, I wouldn't want to say a role model, but someone to someone to look at and to see that they're doing something different. Like, oh, wow, they, I don't have to go down a different route. That's going to hurt me. I can stay in school. You know, I can be creative. I can be myself. I can remember who I am. And that all started with cultural activities. That's how it started for me working in the garden. And that's the approach that I use now is there's a few youth just this week that I worked with. Two needed to go to get IDs and they didn't know they were long wait time because of COVID-19. So yeah, we set an appointment, showed them how to do that. But uh, while they're in the car, they're asking like, why I was listening to this music. I was like, what music? Oh, music. I'm like, well, Reminds me of home as a kid. I grew up dancing. I was like, oh, those are all my mom and dad and my relatives. Like, it just reminded me of home. And I said that that be the drum. It's just it's something that's going to remind me of my childhood all the time. It was a really good time. It was safe. It, I felt that good home. feels. Yeah. And uh, it was powerful, too. It was strong. And yeah. That's a cultural teaching I want to share that that drum it represents our heart. And, that's something I shared with those youth. So yeah, when I'm out uh, helping with whatever they need to do, uh, I can. There's always a chance in a moment to talk to them, to make them feel safe, to make them feel at home. And that's conversations they're not going to get in school or with even with family members because there's times in the world where we've became distant from our culture, and you can only find these find an outlet to learn at a cultural event, at a community event, at school or some organization not just somebody in the community that you can go to if you need help or assistance or advice and so right a big piece that would be mentorship and i do do that and then another another youth i work with this week he wanted to start learning how to craft do woodwork and make jewelry uh he gave me the stone that was from michigan and it means a lot to him and it's in the shape of a bear we didn't need to carve it down or nothing I told him this was a really strong rock and it was quartz. And we took another piece of quartz. We were testing drill bits that weren't working. And I was telling him that we're going to have to try something else. I was like, if not, we have to wrap something around it and just tie it up and put it around your neck. But, you know, like I said, those are culturally relative activities. We're sitting there. I'm showing him how to make a war club. I'm showing him some of the bead work I do. And he asks why I do it. And again, we're able to ask questions and we're just hanging out. And I'm able to provide mentorship and guidance to them through conversation, through storytelling, how we traditionally learn from each other. And this week, he was asking why I like to do crafting stuff. And I said, you know, I was your boy on Shinabi people. We're well-rounded. Well, well, we always prepared for the seasons, prepared for life. I was like, I'm making things for for to dance. I'm making beadwork to wear. It's like, I'm knitting some things to wear for this winter. I said, this is, I told him that to me, it brings me home. It reminds me that I'm home. I was like, plus, so you can make things and your creativity can bring you places. Right. And so that's one thing that I really want to emphasize is on when it comes to working with youth, native youth, it should be culturally relevant and you should be able to connect and relate with them. That's a big thing. I'm able to relate with a lot of these youth. Grew up impoverished, grew up yeah. in the hood, grew up from drug violence, gang violence. I know what that's like. I know what that's life is like. 
they're still living in those environments. And I can tell them that you still, you know, it's not that you don't have to leave. You just got to bring the healing home. You got to bring the healing back to your community, to your people. Show them that there's something different out there, but don't judge people. Get them in, uh, in like a native light, like they're bad people. Right. Everybody's hurt and we're all healing. And some people have different expressions of the trauma and different reactions. Yeah. And it comes out different. So that's stuff that I'm always able to talk to these youth about when we're talking and we're meeting up and help. But beyond that, uh, this collective that I'm part of War Party, uh, this is something I'm really like, happy about to share because a lot of organizations that community do, you know, community do offer culturally relevant activities and programming, but it's usually at their site or it costs a lot of money or it's, there's not enough space, you know, but yeah, we like going to the youth. We'll, we'll talk to them. We'll hang out. And we'll do culturally relevant things. Just the other week, we're chopping down trees for war clubs, shaving those down, telling them the teachers behind these and why we use them, why we dance with them. And it just leads to more activities. It's like uh, a year ago, we were able to bring some youth to a Sundance ceremony. We were able to bring some up to a sweat up on the reservation. But they will experience that much in the city, if at all. And so we want to offer that and show them that, you know, there's still people that are young adults that are youth that are living their culture, they're embracing it. They know their clan. They ask their elders about who they are. They learn about their, their, their creation stories. And that's powerful because when you have that identity, you have that sense of community, you have uh, that resilience, and you have an understanding of where you come from. And you're rooted. You know, you don't have to feel lost and out of place. You have a reference point for who we are as people. We're strong people. Yeah. And that's what we want to remind the youth that we work with and that we help them to. And when it comes to processing the trauma, it has to happen through storytelling. It has to happen through conversations and, and activities. You don't just sit there and, hey, you traumatize. Let's get through it. Like, no, you got to talk about the historical relevancy behind that right. intergenerational trauma. You got to talk about the boarding schools, the residential schools, how our families were hurt, the abuses that happened, alcoholism, uh, starvation with uh Take land out, rights, land rights, and we have to have those conversations. And it can all start from the uh, school behavior. That's one conversation to talk about. A lot of the youth will feel bad for not doing well in school. And I say, you know, I didn't do too well either. My parents didn't. Uh, their parents had bad experiences being forced to boarding schools or Catholic schools or residential schools there in Canada. And those stories pass on like, oh, these teachers don't want to work with you. They're just going to look down on you. Hearing those things, not just from family, but even having teachers with uh, an attitude of like, oh, you're not going to learn. It has an effect and that's intergenerational. We remember that. It's in our blood. So yeah. Those big things with trauma, they can be talked about, but you don't just drop it on the table. You have to ease into it and navigate it. And so it doesn't distract your mind from learning. Right. That's why you do those, those activities that get your hands involved, that get your mind working, you get the storytelling, using the Ojibwe language, joking around, making each other laugh. That's who we are as Anishinaabe people. We, we do storytelling, we laugh with each other. Good sense of humor. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. That's one thing that these youth really love is when you're able to connect with them and make them laugh, that's what's going to get them to process things that's going on. Then you can have a talking circle. You can be traditional, so have a feather go around, teaching the importance of the feather. The importance of the eagle, of Zagia, the one of love, why the feather is important, why he's the messenger for our prayers. Those are the types of things that I get to talk with, talk about with youth, and it leads up to that those talking circles about healing and, and trauma. And at a school site that I worked at, 
educated the native educators that did that during the school day. They had a big circle talk and uh, it was deep. It was emotional. They talked about home life. They talked about things that go on in the community and we related back to intergenerational trauma that environments are, they, they have an effect on us and there's historical relevancy to that. Right. And that's something we have to understand so we can get past it. That way we understand where this hurt, where this pain comes from. We can pinpoint, we can mitigate, and we can heal. Yeah. That way they can learn. So processing it, giving them the laugh, coming together as a, as a class, as a community, allowing them, allowing them to use their, their body and their, their mind rather than just sitting there and remembering to memorize things. Right. And that way you have to get the body and mind involved. And that's traditionally how we learn, you know, activities, storytelling, and laughing. I feel that. It's a lot of gems that you dropped there. <laughs> a couple of things I just wanted to note. I know you mentioned that, you know, the drums are a universal thing and powwow music. Like personally, I, I like listening to it when I'm working out or on runs. I think, you know, mm-hmm. something that we can all embrace. I think a couple of important things that you mentioned when it comes to working with youth, because I remember t- I took a adolescent psychology class. I think it was a couple of years ago. And I know one thing that the professor mentioned a lot is that it's important for adolescents to have at least one adult in their life, have at least one meaningful relationship with an adult in their life. And I know you mentioned that a lot with mentoring and things of that nature. So I think it's really good that you do that. The other thing that I was going to highlight as well is um, you talked about how embracing identity can help support um, indigenous youth. Um, you know, in terms of processing trauma, just focusing on learning, all that kind of stuff. And it made me think again, back to my psychology class, because there are actually peer reviewed studies that support the notion that when Native American youth in, um, embrace their culture, that they do better academically and things of that nature. So this is a good segue into my next question. So one thing that I talk about with my sister, who's an elementary school teacher, and you and I had briefly mentioned this as well, is that learning and education have to take place outside of the classroom as well. So with that in mind, do you think that the tide is changing in the sense that more educators are recognizing this and adapting? I can't speak for all educators. I can speak for on my experiences at a, at a high school that has a program for native youth and was a high population, uh, learning outside of school, it was definitely spoken about. I was brought in on a team to speak with the teachers since I had a close relationship with the youth working as a, as a coordinator for after school. It was uh, difficult to hear this conversation because these teachers felt really defeated. They didn't they, their morale was low. Um, and they're good teachers and, we had all had to process what was going on, and that's why they brought me on to talk about what the youth are going through at home, what's going on in the community, how is what how is the outside world affecting them, what's going on at school. And a big thing is a lot of these youth didn't have a safe place to actually learn and, and feel comfortable doing outside activities beyond just playing video games or hanging out at the park, walking around. Uh, a lot of these kids came from our communities, uh, parts of our community that. Uh, aren't as safe or they're not in an environment where it allows them or it's quiet enough for them to peacefully learn something. So we had to really tailor our our activities after school to allow these youth to unwind, to come together to eat, and then we can come come together again over some uh, culturally relevant activities or 
learning experiences. And we would bring elders in from our community that were established with medicines, with foraging, with uh, storytelling, crafting. And each week we'd bring these elders in and we'd all talk together. And as I mentioned before, we'd have those talk in circles, but it was getting engaged them. It was uh, offering that they can come after school and they can unwind, we'll feed them and we can talk and then we can also learn from our elders. And it was uh, helping a lot during the school, just as you said, with that psychology study. Yeah. Those cultural and programming that we were having after school, it was helping uh, a lot of these youth be more attentive in class. And there were side conversations, the teachers would say that, but say that would go on in class, but it was about after school programming. And so they would be able to bring it back around with like the either Ojibwe language or storytelling or learning about uh, star, star constellations and plant growth and trying to relate that to their classes that they take. And so these teachers would ask, well, if you were talking about this at school, how does it relate to, you know, yada, yada. They try to make those connections and it was working. Yeah. So speaking for the school site that I worked at, I would say that they picked up on that after school programming and providing a space for these youth to, to come together and right. not to be any conflict or any judgment. For them to come together, it really helped for them to be attentive in school and even encourage them to learn outside of school. They'd be coming to us with questions uh, after a week and they'd be online or they'd be with family asking them culturally relevant questions. And they'd come to us asking if we can craft this where if we can learn about this or go on a trip. And it's just, it was beautiful because of what we're doing after school. It was allowing these youth to explore more, how do you say, opportunities within their community and their family, like what opportunities to ask questions and probably how to say engage more in like uh, school related activities yeah. or just learning in general. But when it comes to picking up on that on a broader spectrum, I don't know if teachers are picking up on it before the COVID, but now they're seeing how youth are being affected right now with distance learning. Right. And with my own experiences with family, such as sisters or relatives and cousins that are in school and that are their youth, it really is hard for them. It's not that it's just hard waking up. It's that, that, uh, that social aspect. We talked about community earlier, right? Yeah. And how important being locally involved is. And right now, this distance learning is highlighting how, you know, human interaction through a screen, it may not be the best way of interacting with each other and getting to know people. We still need that face-to-face human, a human, uh, I would say human interaction. Interaction, yeah. Yeah, definitely. We need that. And there's youth are experiencing that. Mm-hmm. Granted, uh, my siblings and cousins, they're doing well in school, but mentally it's having a toll on them. You know, some changes in behavior. Right. Changes in the way they eat, the way they think. Uh, and now they're beginning to express it that they're starting to feel depressed because of what's going on. Right. And that's even the case at some of these school sites that I visit and with educators that uh, I'm in contact with. It's like that with high schoolers too. They're doing what they can to try to do, try to make it more interactive, to try to bring in more of a piece for outside learning rather than just being on Zoom and Google Meet for eight hours straight. Right. And an example of that would be one educator I know, they work with Native youth. He's an educator. Is they're, they're building up meeting kits. And it's going to be after class. The youth can come. Um, I believe there's an incentive for it. I forget what the incentive is. But it's after all the schools, 
classes are done and over with, but it's a little Zoom meeting, Zoom video. They come in, they, they look at some instructions, some cultural teachings, some storytelling, and then they have their own beating kit. And they can make this, and then they can come together and share this with their, with their peers. But again, it needs human contact, but they're doing what they can with what they have. Right. And it's, it's, a learning, it's a learning experience now with COVID, and it's just highlighting, emphasizing the need for after-school uh, activities and encouragement to learn beyond the classroom. Just wrapping up here, so I mentioned before, um, I'm going to have some links in the description for you guys. Um, so have some materials related to navigating conversations with indigenous folks, as well as educational links about their culture and things of that nature. So um, do you have any other things off the top of your head for ordinary people to honor or remember your community by? Um, let's see. Just knowing the, the lands that we're on, uh, specifically and especially Minnesota, that these are Dakota homelands. There's uh, Anishinaabe and Ojibwe reservations here. But historically, these are not our homelands. We were gathered around the Great Lakes, the East Coast. We migrated. It's within our creation story. So I want people to remember that and to honor the Dakota people, that the Dakota people of Minnesota. I would love for people to acknowledge and remember and to know that and to honor but beyond that, as uh, he was saying, we'll provide some materials for you to, to learn more. There's some really good books about a piece of the conversation that we had on uh, the national parks on uh, land disputes and land seizures. But as he said, well, there's going to be some good material in there. Definitely. So that's all I've got. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Theo, I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to tell us more about you and your community and you know we appreciate learning from you so thank you and yep, take care thank you for tuning in today we hope you enjoyed the show and had fun while learning more from everyday people just like yourselves to support us and help us spread these stories even further please consider giving us a review or rating on whichever platform you're streaming from there will be links in the description box just in case you can't find it and for more news and all things everyday people, join our newsletter by going to our website. By joining, you'll also gain exclusive offers and discounts on Illuminating Mycelium merchandise and apparel from our store. Just go to IlluminatingMyceliumPodcast.com or click the link in the description and become the Mycelium.